Father, would you be our teacher? Would you open our hearts and our minds to consider some of the events, some of the teaching of Jesus in that last week of his life, of his ministry? And Father, would you do what only you and the Holy Spirit are capable of doing, speak to us each personally in ways that we need to be spoken to, in ways that would draw us closer to you and to places of deeper faith. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One writer uh, quite a few years ago, over 100 years ago, wrote these words. We don't actually know who, who wrote this, but they wrote these words. Once each week, all over the world, multitudes wind their way to worshiping assemblies to pay homage and respect to Jesus. The names of past proud statesmen of Greece and Rome have come and gone. The names of past scientists, philosophers, and theologians have come and gone. But the name of this man abounds more and more. Though time has spread more than 2,000 years between people of this generation and the scene of his crucifixion, yet he still lives. Herod could not destroy him. The grave could not hold him. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed of God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, feared by the evil one as the one living, personal, incomparable Jesus Christ. This morning I want to spend some time, as I said, setting a context for why exactly Jesus is incomparable, incomparable. I want to walk through the days of the final week of Jesus' life and highlight some of those events and some of those things. And I hope at the time we finish, you'll have a greater understanding and appreciation of exactly what Jesus did and along with that, exactly who Jesus is. So to get started, I want to go uh, backwards uh, from that week. I want to actually look at the Friday and the Saturday before Palm Sunday. Uh, if you knew that you were going to die in one week, which, of course, was Jesus' context, he knew he was going to die in a week. But you had a two-day weekend before that final week would begin. What would you do? Where would you go? Well, here's what Jesus did. And like many things in Jesus' life, I, I personally find this instructive. I find it challenging because when I look at his priorities and his activities, often mine don't look similar. But here's what Jesus did. On the Friday and Saturday before Palm Sunday, Jesus went to the home of three of his closest friends. A couple of miles outside of Jerusalem was a small town called Bethany. You can read about this in John chapter 12. He was with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and his disciples. And it's interesting to me that Jesus could have done, I would assume, pretty much anything he wanted to do. Uh, he could have gone pretty much anywhere he wanted to go, and he could have been with anyone, but he chose to be with his closest inner circle of friends. And, of course, that's perfectly consistent with the habits that we see elsewhere in Jesus' life. Because all throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus demonstrated the value of something called koinonia, something called fellowship, something called community. In fact, uh, he, he created a circle of friends that he could trust, even though, as we find out, they weren't that trustworthy. But Jesus knew that. 
He knew that these people loved him. He created a group of people that he could love, and in turn, he knew that they loved him. He created this group of people that he could serve and would serve, and in turn, they, of course, also served him. And he created this group of people that he did life with. In fact, they would gather together and they would celebrate events in their lives. They would grieve together. They would rejoice together. But it was always together. Jesus encouraged everyone to move toward that kind of community. So in the final free weekend of Jesus' life, it's not a coincidence that we find him with the people he loved. A diverse group of people, I might add. They weren't all people from the Carpenters Guild or something of that nature. They were from different socioeconomic communities or groups. There was a tax collector, a very wealthy tax collector among them. There was a political zealot among them looking to overthrow the Romans. There were fishermen among them. There were men and women. These were his friends. These were his disciples. And it makes you ask, you know, how am I doing in an area like this? Do I have an inner circle of friends that I, that I trust, that I go to, that I spend time with, that I build relationship with? Friends that know me, friends that I know, friends that help me grow to become more like Jesus. This is something, friends, we all need. We all need and should be moving constantly in the direction of becoming more like Jesus. Friends are one of the things, key things that help us do that. And honestly, that really is what the church is supposed to be about, creating a context for us to create that kind of koinonia, that kind of community, that kind of friendship. And when you do, honestly, honestly, that's, what's, that's really what makes you feel fully alive, these kinds of relationships that I'm describing. It's the discovery of community. It's the connection with others. And this is also part of the church's witness. We talked about this last week, that together, as a group, a very imperfect group, we are a witness to the world out there. When they see a very diverse group of people, different politics, different priorities, but when we come together to worship here, we're a connected, together group of people. And we serve in the name of Jesus together, regardless of our differences. And that is a powerful, powerful witness to the world and always has been. It's this community that Jesus came to create. He came to bring together diverse groups of people and make them, enable them to love one another. And we need his help to love each other, don't we? Oh, you're not having a problem with that. <laughs> well, I need his help. And uh, so do you. And that's the community that Jesus is creating here and in us. And as he does that, we change and we become more like him and we have priorities like his priorities. That's just an observation before we even get started in this sermon. So that time, take that away. I didn't really use that time. I can continue on in this message. Now, after Jesus spent Friday and Saturday there in Bethany, then comes Sunday. This is the formal beginning of what's called Passion Week or Palm Sunday. It's called that because when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowds used palm branches to kind of wave them and then lay them in the path of Jesus. And this gesture doesn't mean much to us today, but in that day, it was sort of like a ticker tape parade or a Super Bowl celebration. You know, people lining the, the pathway, the streets, so to speak, and the, the palms in, were in the first century, that, a version of that kind of thing. 
It was a big public celebration. And here's the interesting thing going on here, at least to me. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and people know, they're absolutely certain, something's going to happen this week. Because things have been heating up around Jesus. There's a lot of talk and a lot of turmoil in the city around Jesus. A lot of speculation about him. Who is he? Why is he coming? Yeah, he just recently had raised Lazarus, his friend from the dead, and word of that was getting out everywhere. Uh, he has been healing people. And he has been teaching, uh, just astonishing everyone who listens. And now he's coming to Jerusalem. And the scribes and the Pharisees have put the word out that if anyone sees Jesus, they are to report that immediately to them so that they could arrest him. And in John chapter 11, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, I'm going to read a section of scripture here that kind of puts this whole week in perspective and kicks it off. This is John chapter 11, verse 55. Uh, it says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. And they kept looking for Jesus. You see, word on the street, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might arrest him. Six days before Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. And she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples... Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should have this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priest made, the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. You hear excitement building for this Passion Week, this Passover week. The next day, the crowd, the, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Those are dangerous words to be shouting. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey, sat upon it as it was written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him 
and that they had done these things to him. God is doing things that the disciples don't understand. Go figure. (laughs) That's nothing new, is it? So here comes Jesus and the crowds and there are hundreds, probably thousands of people line the road as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. This is his final uh, week of life and ministry. People are waving palm branches. They're calling out blessing to his name. They're honoring him. But understand what's really going on here was a whole lot of different agendas. That's what's really going on. Different expectations, different hopes behind why these people are gathered there and shouting praises and waving branches and celebrating Jesus coming into the city. Some of the people were, as I said, political activists. They wanted to use Jesus' supernatural abilities to accomplish their political agendas. I mean, come on. If you have a guy on your team that can feed the troops with a loaf of bread and some fish, that's pretty nice. If you have a guy who can heal everybody's wounds, that works great on a battlefield. If you have a guy who can walk across water, well, dadgummit, you want him on your team. And some of them are kind of thinking that way. They're thinking that maybe then they could overthrow these oppressive Romans and make Jerusalem great again. What's he mean by that? Not even going to tell you. But they're cheering Jesus on. Some others had seen Jesus heal. And they had their sick aunt or uncle or perhaps even their child. And they were hoping to get a miracle somehow, some way. Others were there just to go with the flow, right? See what would happen. This is bound to be interesting. This is entertainment, first century style. Others, still others, were there to figure out a way to put a stop to all this. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. The point is this. There were all kinds of reasons that the crowds were there that day. Some, some in the crowd cheering Jesus on. Some looking for an opportunity to put an end to his life. But Jesus alone out of all these people, knew exactly what he was doing. Knew exactly why he was there. Knew exactly what the mission was. And despite all of these other agendas, his agenda was to march resolutely to the cross. His agenda was to fulfill the mission that the Father had given him from the start. And that mission was to die. Think about that. That mission was to die, die on a cross, to pay for your sins and mine, to redeem his people. So in spite of all of these other agendas, Jesus marched resolutely to the cross. And thank God, thank God Jesus ignored all of those other agendas. Thank God Jesus ignores all of our sinful self-serving agendas. Thank God Jesus accomplishes exactly what we need and applies it to us regardless the pain or the difficulty that might cause in our lives. Thank God, thank God, thank God that he has an agenda and he accomplishes the agenda. You know, human nature being what it is, we always want God to use, we want to use God to accomplish our agendas way more than we want to know what his agenda is in the world or in our lives. Still today, you know, lots of people come to church with lots of different agendas. You know, maybe if I tap into God, we think uh, he'll help me, you know, get a spouse or he'll help me straighten out my kid or he'll help me fix my finances or improve my business or save my marriage or help me not be so lonely, maybe. 
And here's the truth. When we actually do love God and when we actually do obey him and seek to follow him, sometimes a lot of those things happen. Sometimes they do. But far more importantly, what happens when we love God and follow Jesus and serve and obey him, what happens is he saves us. He begins to make us an entirely new creature created in him. He helps us die to self and die to sin and he helps us lay aside our agendas and become more about God's agenda and say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. That's all about letting go of your agenda, my agenda, our kingdoms, and and seeking first God's kingdom. There, There were a lot of jumbled up agendas on Palm Sunday, is the point I'm trying to make, and none of them, none of them deterred Jesus. Just like your false agenda and my false agenda will not deter Jesus, deter Jesus from doing what we need to have him do in us and even through us. And then Monday comes, the second day of Passion Week. Jesus does something that kind of took people's breath away here. He walks into the temple, this place of worship and public gathering, and here's Jesus, the one who is known for talking about the love of God talking about reconciliation, meekness, tenderness, humility, all these things. He walks into the temple and he sees that it has been overrun with commercialism. People are making lots of money at the temple. People have set up all kinds of shops selling animals for sacrifice for a profit. And there are little banks all around where they are exchanging money as people come into Jerusalem for Passover and they come from other places with other currency and they can exchange their money for the currency they need to buy the animals they need. Oh yeah, for a profit. You get the idea. And everywhere you look, people are doing business in the temple and Jesus gets angry about this. He cracks a whip. He turns over tables that are filled with money. He, he sets some of the animals free by all this discombobulation. And what he's doing is he's telling him, this all needs to stop. And people were amazed. Man, what's he so bothered about? We haven't seen this kind of behavior before, not from this guy. Well, he was about many things. But one of the things he was about was that whenever a a worshiping community is formed, and that, of course, is what was happening. That was supposed to be a worshiping community there in Jerusalem as people gathered in preparation for the coming Passover, glorifying God, worshiping God, talking to God, praying to God. Well, whenever a worshiping community is formed, the mission of the community, that community needed to be clear. The mission should have been helping people who were far from God, to find God. The mission should have been to help people grow in their relationship with this God. The mission should have been to help people know how they could honor God, how they could glorify Him, how their lives could be useful in service to God. That was always the main purpose of a worshiping community, whether we're talking Old Testament or New. And Jesus knows that soon he's going to die. He's going to go be with the Father. He also knows that his followers will be spreading the news about him literally everywhere. And in time, worshiping communities. They were going to be called churches. 
would be popping up all over the place. And Jesus knew that if these churches ever got off mission, if they became groups of people that became legalistic or self-centered or political or commercialized organizations, well, then the most important message in the world would get compromised or even worse, completely forgotten. And so Jesus got the whip and was saying, you've forgotten the mission. He says, my house will be called a house of prayer. That's the mission, connecting with God, talking with God, letting God be at work in our lives so that people can see the reality of God. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers, he said. What you're doing here is not what you should be doing. My message of forgiveness and grace and mercy, my message about God and his goodness, my message about God and his provision to pay for your sins, to give you my righteousness. He said, that message you've corrupted. Now, when we started this church like 35 years ago almost, we were aware of passages like this. We wanted to stay on target with the with what the churches are supposed to be about, what the mission is that God has given us. We knew that we were a group of people who weren't perfect. We shouldn't go around acting like we're perfect. We knew we were a group of people that needed God's grace and and God's forgiveness. But we also knew that we were a people who had found those very things in the person, the work, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we wanted, right from the start, right up to the present, To be a gathering of people whose purpose is not political, not legalistic, it's not commercial. We wanted to be a place that would actually help people know Jesus, the one true living God. We want to be a place that can help people grow in their trust and in their faith so that they reflect God, his truth, his love, his mercy, his wisdom at work, at school, at home. And by doing that very thing, by living life under the observation and empowered by the power of God himself, by doing life that way, what we do is we give God glory and we point the world out there to the God up there. That's what we wanted to do. That's the mission we've been given. And we want to always stay clear on that mission. Am I right? Now that Monday, many years ago, Jesus cleared the temple with a whip because he was, he was serious about exactly this kind of thing. He wanted us, his people, his followers, his disciples to stay on mission, to live our lives with mission. Our doing what God wants us to do has everything to do with us being disciples and us making disciples. So that was a memorable Monday, so much so that every one of the apostles wrote about it. And then Tuesday uh, rolled around and Jesus starts teaching. And oh man, what a day that was. You know, Jesus really is the greatest teacher that ever taught. The words that came out of his mouth would many times just astonish People. They would be in awe of how he taught, of what he said, of the way he portrayed his heavenly father. In Matthew chapter 7, uh, it says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, and this is actually, this, this kind of statement occurs uh, several places in scripture in the gospels. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And on Tuesday, Jesus taught all day long, morning to evening. 
It seems he knew that this would be his last full day of teaching. He challenged the Pharisees. He challenged the Sadducees who were trying to trap him in his words. And again and again, he answered their questions and then he would ask them some. And that was always interesting. Uh, it says that one in, in Matthew 22, it says when he did ask questions, it says no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus silenced him. He challenged them. He warned them. On that day, he, he spoke to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. And over and over and over, he said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. And he would take them on for one legalistic practice, one legalistic idea after another. And then he talked about a day when he would come again. He warned them in Matthew 24. He said, therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord. He's talking about himself. Your Lord will come. What do you suppose he taught about in his final hours of teaching? Well, one of the things he taught about in those final hours is a, a parable about talents. You know this parable. Uh, this is the master who is getting ready to leave and he calls his servants together and gives one of his servants five talents, another one two and another one one. And then he leaves, it says, for a long time. And when he returns, finally returns, the one who had been given five talents uh, actually produces five talents more and gives back 10 talents to the master. He's been faithful in investing what the master had given him, putting it to good use. And the one with two talents, you recall, uh, has gained two more and gives that to the master. And the master says to both of those servants, well done, good and faithful servant. And then the guy with one talent who had taken it and buried it and put it in the ground because he, he was afraid of the master. But he made no effort whatsoever to do anything with what God had given him, what the master had given him, other than bury it. And to that servant, the master says, you wicked and lazy servant. <laughs> and part of the point is, you know what? You've got one life and one life only. Don't waste it. Use who you are. Use what you have to honor and serve the master. Jesus was saying, look, I, I've given you talents, abilities. I've given you passions, interests, spiritual gifts. I've given you a life. So use it. Do something that matters with your one and only life. And here's what matters most. Follow and obey me. Glorify your maker. Don't be like the one talent guy who was disobedient who hid his talent, who squandered his opportunity. Make your one and only life count by following and obeying Jesus. It was strong stuff then, strong words. It's still strong stuff today. And you know who it's really strong for? Well, all of us. But I think especially old folks like myself. Because you know, I'm retiring. And that means I can retire from all this gobbledygook Christian stuff, right? Is that what that means? No. But the temptation is to do that. It's just to back off and be useless. I hope I don't do that. God forbid. Take what God has given you, whatever that is, and put it to use. 
as we get older, sometimes it feels like we've got less and less to use because, you know, bits and pieces are falling off, you know. <laughs> but that's not true. You've got experience to share. You've got wisdom to share. You've been through lots of problems, lots of difficulties, made lots of mistakes. All of that is worth sharing. It'll help somebody who's about to make a mistake. Oh, they'll go ahead and make the mistake, but at least you can tell them, this is what's going to happen when you make that mistake. <laughs> you get the idea. You're always, always, always useful to Jesus. Use your talents. Use your abilities. You have one life. And last I checked, you're alive until you're dead. So you have one life. Make it count. Obey the master. Now, another thing that Jesus said, uh, just as he was about to finish teaching, he talked about a day where there were going to be a, 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 was a, a moral accounting. Everybody was going to have to face a judge. And Jesus taught that there is this final day, this moral reckoning is coming. And he made it very clear to everyone that when you stand before God and you will, when you stand before him, you will answer for your life. What you did, what you didn't do, your sins will be punished because God is a just God. And your evil will be judged. The evil in us, the evil in the world, it's all going to be judged. God is a holy God, a righteous God, a just God. So you will get exactly what you deserve. Or you can put your trust and your faith in Jesus and you can let him save you from what you deserve. You can let Jesus pay for your sins. That's what the cross, of course, is all about. And if we put our trust and our faith in Jesus, if we follow him and give our lives to him, Jesus will give us life with God in heaven for all eternity. That's the promise. Jesus said this one time, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's that's an amazing promise. And then the sun went down and Jesus stopped teaching. And that was Tuesday. And then Wednesday came. Guess what happened on Wednesday? Well, nothing. Apparently nothing. No appointments, no healings, no speaking engagements. In fact, in John's gospel, there's this little phrase in John chapter 12. It says, when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Because of the level of danger that he was under. Little wonder, knowing too what was coming on Thursday and Friday, Jesus, it seems, entered into a day of solitude with his heavenly father. Apparently, that's what he did on Wednesday. He got alone with God. Uh, what he did uh, exactly, we don't know, but I bet he did then what we saw him do on other occasions. Uh, I bet he sought strength from the Father for what was about to come. I bet he quieted himself and shut out all those other voices and other agendas so that he could hear the voice of his Father and remember their agenda so uh, Wednesday was not a wasted day, even though we don't really know exactly what happened on it. It wasn't a wasted day. And sometimes when I reflect on this, I wonder what would happen if I just uh, would practice this discipline, this thing of solitude and getting alone with God more faithfully. Quieting myself, shutting out the noise, the confusion, so that I can hear from my Heavenly Father. Solitude. 
Boy, solitude, hard to come by in our day and age. In solitude, you say, Lord, if there's something that you want to say to me, something that where I need to hear what you have to say, then, then God, right now in this time of solitude, speak to me, talk to me. You open a Bible, you read it, you reflect, you pray, and you, you make a practice of this discipline of solitude. You know, some of us here this morning are perhaps investigators, and you're just beginning to check out this thing called Christianity or the claims of Jesus Christ. And for you, solitude might just be getting to a quiet place and saying, God, if you're real, I need you to let me know that. I need you to make that clear. So I'm going to read your Bible, and uh, God, speak to me. Impact me with your word. See what God says. See what God does. He loves a challenge like that. Some of us, I'm sure, are making big decisions right now. When you're a young family, you're always making big decisions. Uh, What would happen if you got alone with God long enough to listen? Long enough to tell him, God, I need your wisdom. I need you to guide me. I need help in this family that I'm a part of. You see, here's the thing. Being alone with God affords us the opportunity to get his mind on the matter of our circumstances. And believe me, you need that, and so do I. I need his mind, his perspective on my circumstances. That enables us to have his power and work with his wisdom and have his peace and have his perspective on the situations I find myself in. That's vitally important, friends. That's how you honor and glorify God in spite of whatever your circumstances are, by having his perspective, by getting his wisdom, by stepping out in faith, trusting, here's the right thing. This is what he wants me to do. I'm going to do it. And I suspect that that's kind of what Jesus did on Wednesday so he could face what was coming. And you all know what Thursday brought. Thursday was the Passover meal in the upper room. Jesus took the loaf of bread and he broke it. He filled the cup with wine and he passed that around and he said, this bread, this cup, they represent my body. They represent my blood. Sacrifice for you. Do this in remembrance of me until I come again. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Beyond that, I think something else that probably lingered in the minds of the disciples uh, for years and years to come was the little episode that happened just before dinner. You remember this? Uh, you know, Passover was a big deal. Uh, it was a clean-up, dress-up occasion. You know, don't come dirty to the Passover table. Uh, so the disciples come to this private room that's been prepared, and once they get there, they realize that nobody has asked a foot-washing servant to show up. And this made for a, a rather awkward moment, really. They were about to sit down to this formal meal, the Passover meal, and they had walked on dusty roads to get there. Of course, they all had. And there was usually a foot washer or a servant around to clean your feet so that you could then recline at table. That was the custom and have clean feet, not dirty feet next to you as, you know, John's feet are over here right by you. But no one had made those arrangements. And none of the disciples were going to wash anybody's feet. So it was a little awkward there for a moment. And Jesus, seeing this, he stands up and he takes off his robe. He puts a towel around himself and pours some water in a basin and he proceeds to wash their feet. 
And they're thinking, what in the world? What is he doing now? This isn't right. A servant should be doing this. And of course, turns out, a servant was. The servant of all servants. The master, the rabbi. He made this statement one time. It's a familiar statement. He said, I came not to be served. Are you kidding me, Jesus? You come from heaven to earth and you came not to be served, but to serve. And Jesus was happy to serve them. In fact, that's the way he led. He led by serving. And so one by one, sinful men got their feet washed by the sinless Son of God. And quite honestly, Jesus again and again and again displayed a level of humility and servanthood like this world has never, ever seen before. And that lesson on servanthood was just another chapter in what Jesus had been teaching these guys now for more than three years. He said it many times in many different ways. You see, life, true fulfillment in life will never come as a result of self-gratification, self-promotion. And that's part of what he meant when he said things like, but seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all these things, all these things you think you need, all these things you think might make you happy or, 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 or might, you know, just, just uh, make you uh, healthy, wealthy, etc. All those things, they, they will be added unto you as you seek first the kingdom. You see, if you're always thinking, I'm just one acquisition away from being happy or being fulfilled, one achievement away, one thrill away, one relationship away from finally being fulfilled, Jesus says, no. Not so. True fulfillment never comes through a non-stop pursuit of self-gratification. The point of life, friends, the abundant life, the joy-filled life comes through knowing God. Nothing else. It comes through loving God. It comes through serving God. By serving others. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And that's what he was saying when he washed their feet. This is what abundant life looks like, folks. Serving and washing someone's feet. This is what God does for you. He serves you because he loves you. And so now you should serve others. Friends, Jesus' words are as challenging to us today as they were to the disciples over 2,000 years ago. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. You know, if you're lacking friends, if your life lacks adventure, direction, purpose, if you struggle to live life abundantly and joyfully, here's the solution. And I mean this. Become a servant. Do what Jesus did on the last night before he died. Wash some feet. Find some people to serve 
in Jesus' name. And I promise you, you will get connected and you will find meaning because you are loving people the way Jesus loves you. That's abundant living. Well, we come to Friday. Uh, we'll, we'll be looking at Friday in just a few days, so I don't need to say much about this. But Friday, as you know, was full of cross examinations, full of beatings. Friday was the cross. And Jesus' blood was spilled on Friday. Nails were pounded through his hands and his feet. And this, of course, is service and love like no other. The Apostle John tells us that in this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment, the ransom for our sins. And it doesn't stop there. It continues. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There's that serving aspect, you see. And this is why Jesus went to the cross. God's justice, if he was going to love people, demanded that God himself make a payment. Jesus gave his life as a ransom, he said, for many, to ransom us from the just judgment of Almighty God. Jesus voluntarily went to the cross for his people. And when he hung there, we cried out, it is finished. It is finished. It's done. I have paid the price for the sins of my people. And the whole sky went dark. You remember. The earth shook. An earthquake happens. And tombs are opened, we are told. And it says, holy people came out of the tombs and gave testimony to what was going on. That had to be weird. <laughs> Uncle Bob, I thought you were dead. No. <laughs> the temple curtain is torn from top to bottom, signifying there's a new entrance into the very presence and holiness of God because of Jesus. The Roman soldiers who were standing there at the cross that day, this is what they said. They said, surely this man was the son of God. And they were right. And his disciples took him down around sundown on Friday from the cross. They laid him in a tomb and then it's the next day. It's Saturday. Saturday is a weird day. You don't hear much about Saturday. There's a lot to say about Good Friday. There's a lot to say about Easter, and I can't wait to talk about it, but there's not much to say about Saturday. Saturday was a, a tough, 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 awful day for the disciples. It was the in-between day, right? The promise had been made. They didn't understand it, but it had been made, but the fulfillment of the promise was yet to be realized. And so Saturday is this really awkward in-between time, the time between promise and fulfillment, a lot like the time in which we live now. The promise is there. The work has been done and completed, but we're waiting on a return. On Saturday, the disciples were, oh boy, discouraged. They were fearful. They were hiding. They were utterly defeated. The future looked frightening. The movement seemed over. They were focused on their dark, bleak, immediate circumstances. And it was hard for them to see that anything, and I mean anything good at all, could come out of the death of Jesus. But little did they know. Here's, I guess, my favorite phrase. God was up to something. Now, they would learn that later. But they hadn't learned it yet. 
Later on in Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching a sermon and he, he reminds people that, that what happened to Jesus, they put him on the cross, they murdered him, but it was because that was part of the decrees of God. God was at work in their evil, not causing their evil, but he was going to overcome their evil and bring redemption out of the evil of the crucifixion of his son, Jesus. And they would learn that later. In fact, they would learn it so well, the apostle Paul said this. uh, He said that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, little did they know. Little did they know that Jesus was the master of leading through serving. And Jesus was the master of producing joy out of sorrow. And Jesus was the master of bringing life even out of death. Little did they know. But they would learn. They would learn that when you're in a Saturday season, what you do is, And hear me on this because some of us here this morning are in a Saturday season. Yeah, the promise is there. The fulfillment hasn't come and you feel like you're dying. Things look bleak. They look dark. You're just not sure about the future, about tomorrow. Well, if you're in a Saturday season, what you do is you hold on. You trust. You believe. Because you've seen him do it before. You pray, you wait. You wait to see what God is going to do. Because you know, you know he's up to something. A week from now, we're going to get to talk about just what it was God was up to. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so challenged and also so encouraged by the life that Jesus led and by his death and by his resurrection. Would you help us to conform our thinking and our actions and our lives, conform them to the mission and the purpose for which we were made, to follow him, to honor him, to obey him, and by so doing, give glory to you and witness to others. Would you encourage us, God, where our lives are dark, Your purposes, the meaning of our circumstances are confusing. They're overwhelming. God, help us to hold on. Because God, we see again and again and again and again that you are a God who is always up to something. And you are able to take even the worst of circumstances, even where there is evil involved, and you can overcome it, you can redeem it, and you can achieve and accomplish your agenda. May you do that, God, accomplish your agenda in this world, in our lives, in this church. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.